Thank you, Nicole. Well, happy Easter, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Exodus is not a common Easter text, but um, certainly we see themes in uh, the five books of Moses, which is what we've been covering since uh, the fall. And today's text is actually quite uh, profound in terms of its, um, it, its, its impact in the biblical story, what happens here in uh, Exodus uh, 19 and 20. And um, we're going to read, well, Nicole read one of the most revealing statements voiced by Israel that reflects where we as human beings are at and why we need why we need a mediator, why we need Jesus Christ, why we need somebody to enter into death and to, and to rise again. And it uh, reflects, reflects our deepest realities, this text today. It reflects a, a darkening of consciences and a, and a lack of openness and a lack of willingness to, to be in the presence of God. And so we, we see here in this text uh, the manifestation of fear and insecurity and timidity and powerlessness, a lot of the things that reflect what, what death is. You know, when man and woman uh, were told in the garden not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they were told that they would die if they ate of it. And the um, consequences after eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not that they immediately died. They didn't immediately die, but their consciences did. And so we're going to look today at this reality. Um, now we're often told, and I think this is a, uh, this is a, I think this is a characteristic of many experiences in churches, regardless of what tradition that you come from. The idea that we needed to be saved because God could not be in the presence of unholy people. So Christ had to make us holy in order for us to enter into God's presence. And holiness was then defined by uh, the Old Testament. Well, I do know how to turn that down a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if I'm standing in the wrong spot or what the deal is. Anyway, so we're told that we're, God needed to save us because we were unholy, and, and for God to be in the presence of anyone, they needed to be holy, and then Old Testament laws then defined what holiness, and we couldn't, we couldn't live up to those Old Testament laws, and so we are condemned, and so God had to then send Jesus and so it's, it's, it's not an entirely incorrect way to think about things, but it's not, it's not accurate. And what happens is that um, we, we have this sense that if we could have matched these requirements, if we could have met these holiness requirements that, that God had established in his law, um, then God could have accepted us. But since we couldn't, then there was this plan B. And it's just not accurate. Jesus Christ wasn't plan B. Us living up to some righteous standard was not plan A. 
And about 20 years ago, um, I just began to wrestle with this idea that God gave us the law in order for us to have something to live up to, but we couldn't, um, because the laws in and of themselves require and, and assume, they assume sin, and they require obedience to the laws in order to be forgiven. And the question that I couldn't get out of my mind was, well, if, if this law is what defines holiness, and if this law is what we were supposed to live up to but couldn't, why does the law, to obey the law, you have to sin? Because the law says, in one, just one aspect of it, if you're going to obey, for example, all of the, the rituals and sacrifices and fasting around the Day of Atonement, Okay, it's a very important part of the law. If you're going to follow that and obey that and fulfill your part in that ritual, you have to acknowledge that sin is present. So to, to obey the law presumed that you were sinners already. So the law is not, was not given as this standard of righteousness that God wanted us to live up to, and because we couldn't, then he sent Christ. So the first time I taught through Galatians, this is also 20-some years ago, I was reading through it with these questions, these puzzling things in my mind about what the law was, what the purpose of the law was, and, and, and came to the conclusion that in the book of Galatians, Paul is teaching that the law is actually teaching faith. It's teaching to love God and to believe in God. And that's the purpose of the law, which is kind of like, okay, so the law rules, teaches faith to believe. And if you broke the law, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, if you break the law, that's what condemns you. But breaking the law isn't breaking these rules. Breaking the law is to not love, is to not have faith. And that's what it means to break the law. And so, um, and you know, like a few weeks ago, we saw that Israel... Was, was judged and condemned from entering into the promised land, not because they broke all the laws that had been given. It was because they didn't love God, and it was because they didn't believe God in all of their grumblings about food and water. They did not love God, but despised him and did not believe that he really cared for them. First and foremost, in the heart of God is that we love him and we believe in him, not that we must be holy and perfect before him. That is not first and foremost in, the law, in, in God's mind. Now, God does say, be holy for I am holy. But this principle has to be the, at the forefront of our minds. We are able to love and we are able to obey because God first loved us. And in the Old Testament, we see God's love expressed in giving us life and then in providing for us food. And then later, after we ate of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, clothing and shelter. God has provided life. He has given us life, beautiful things. And he has poured out his generosity toward us. And that is the first real recognition that we are to see of God's abundant provision for us. And then ultimately that's reflected in the giving of his son, which we're going to see the need for here in this text, which is the gift of life that we ran away from 
because we failed to love and believe in God. I think that, that a lot of us have grown up with this sense that, regard, I mean, yet we know we're saved, but we can't get over this, this feeling that God is disappointed in us. God is disappointed. I talked with a, a good friend this, this week, and um, she has been listening in to our sermons, and she just, we, I haven't seen her for a few years, and she's a, the wife of a good friend of mine that was a roommate in college, and she came up and gave me a big hug. She said, George, I just got to thank you and your church. You guys have saved me. For the first time in my life over this past year, I understand what it means to know and understand and to walk in grace. And she said, I could not get over this constant sense that God was disappointed in me. It's easy for us, even as Christians who have believed in Jesus, or people that haven't believed yet in Jesus, to just have this sense of guilt and shame for the uh, unholiness that reflects in our lives. And again, it's not entirely a sense that we shouldn't have. But we need to understand where it's coming from and, and how God is wanting to use it to draw us to himself. So today's texts refute the idea that God requires holiness before we're in his presence. And we'll see that what is needed is, is our consciences to be cleansed before we are able to dwell in his presence. It's not that God is running away from us because we're unholy. God is chasing after us aggressively, and we are running away because our consciences cannot stand to be in the presence of that great of power and love. And we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we celebrate here on Easter, which is not a biblical holiday, but our culture has formed it over the years, so we celebrate it. But for a Christian, just like Christmas, Every day is a celebration of Jesus. Every, every day is a celebration of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, which is why we celebrate every week in the Lord's Supper. We remember the, the death of Christ. We remember his broken body, his shed blood. We, 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 we um, commemorate the fact that his broken body and shed blood unifies us through the Holy Spirit. And we also share in it because we are waiting for Christ to return. So these are things that we celebrate every day, not just one week or 40 days. And I think, uh, so there's the Ascension, I think, is like uh, May 22nd. And then there's the Pentecost, which is... These things we celebrate as Christians every day. But it's Easter. So we're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to have a purified and cleansed conscience to dwell in the presence of God. So we've been journeying with the family of Abraham and Israel since last fall, and we have observed throughout hundreds of years of history in the, in the Bible what humanity does to itself when it is independent of God. Violence and corruption and abuse is just rampant. So that's why, we, that's why there was the flood, shortened lifespans, God brings judgment upon all of these various cities and nations because of the violence and abuse that they, they just pour out on each other. These things that came from the first despising of and disbelieving in God that we saw in man and woman. But there was hope. There was hope. A woman would eventually give birth to a child that would defeat the serpent and bring life back to humanity and all of creation. 
And so we've, we've unfolded the story from Genesis. We've seen the unfolding of this, this promised child and the line of descendants from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to the 12 sons of Israel. And they are a nation and they've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God brought them out and he told Moses to lead them out and Moses was to bring them to Mount Sinai. So here they are three months after they've been rescued from Egypt and they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, hey, get the people together, and I'm going to enter into a covenant with them, a contractual relationship. If they, there's, an, there's a condition to it, if, if they obey my word, if they love me and follow me, I will do three things. They will be a treasured possession, they will be a kingdom of priests, and they will be a holy nation. A treasured possession means that of all the nations of the world, there is going to be a, a focus and attention on the nation of Israel. Not because the nation of Israel is, is something unique and special among the various nations. It's simply the nation that God chose and rose up so that he could show his power and his wisdom and his glory to all the nations of the world and that all of the nations would be drawn to this nation of Israel because of God. They'd be a kingdom of priests. This is what it meant to be a kingdom of priests. They'd be a nation that, that um, was the means through which the other nations could know and understand God. And they would be holy. Holy meaning set apart and distinct. Not, holiness isn't just a, a moral purity. Holiness is that there, there is a difference. They are set apart. And so Israel said, hey, that sounds great. We'll do it. We'll do it. And so they agree to the covenant, and then God gives instructions. And I'm going to read the text again because we just kind of assume that God's intent from, from the beginning was that Israel would come to this mountain, and then God was just going to give them this law. But there are nuanced things that happen in this scene that we've got to pay very close attention to. So it says, on the morning of the third day, and I'm not going to read it as, as well as Nicole did. I'm going to be a little quicker. But on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people, and this is a super important phrase, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, in the instructions that God had given previously, God said, when the trumpet blasts, the people are to come and meet me. And there's a lot of coming and going, and the text gets somewhat unclear, and scholars are in this place of not really being able to understand and articulate what exactly happened in, in this scene. But Moses' intent, God's intent was for him to meet the people. But the next chapter explains and clarifies what happened in that moment. So God, so, so God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then there's this clarifying text. 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. The, trump, the instructions were that when the trumpet blasts, they are to come near. But when they, what happened is that they stood far off and they said this to Moses. You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They didn't advance advanced near to God at the sound of the trumpet. They stood far off. They went back and they asked Moses to stand in for them. John Salehammer, prominent Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. In their fear... The people traded a personal face-to-face -face relationship with God for a priesthood. Leon Cass, in his commentary on Exodus, says this, They remain terrified and stand away from the mountain, which is to say that they distance themselves from God. We will never again have a clearer demonstration of the difference between Moses and the people, and it is precisely over the matter of how to relate to God. Moses seeks his presence and prefers his company. The people seek his absence and prefer Moses' authority. Moses is satisfied by a relationship with God carried on through intelligible speech. The people will require something else. Well, what is that something else? It's the priesthood. And what comes exactly next after this description that I just read about the people standing far off, what begins to unfold now are all the instructions about the priests and the sacrifices. God established then a system, a system not to make us holy. All right, that's not the purpose of the laws. Paul argues that in Galatians. The law was not intended to make us righteous. God establishes then a system to provide the mediation that we asked for. He gave us priests, or he gave Israel priests that represent people. He gave Israel sacrifices, shed blood that would atone for their sins, and a tabernacle that would provide a physical space. It was them, the people, that asked for the mediator. Because their consciences, their minds, they did not feel like they could stand in the presence of God. Hebrews explains, none could perfect the conscience. For he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a defi of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And he says later, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See, God longs for us to be in his presence. He wanted to meet the people. He wanted to meet the people. It was the people that distanced themselves. Jesus indeed saves us from the wrath and judgment of God. We, we looked at that last week. But this, wasn't, this, this work of Christ wasn't plan B after the Mosaic law failed to make us holy and righteous. Again, it was never in the intent. Brokenness and weakness as human beings is a given in the law of God. It's, it's the, 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 the righteous requirements of the law are not there for us to measure up to. Perfection is never a desire that God had for us that we just couldn't meet and then we had to, to, had to have Christ then. What was needed is faith in God's love. That's what enables us as human beings to be in his presence. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world. That's the gospel. Christ's mediation for us, what the people asked for in Moses, and Moses will say in Deuteronomy, one is coming like me and him you will listen to. Because they didn't listen to Moses. We will speak with you and we will hear you and we will do what you say, but we do not want to meet God. Well, they didn't. They didn't do what Moses said. But Moses said at the end of his life, before he let them off into the land under Joshua's leadership, one is coming like me, and him you will listen to, and he will change your hearts. And how does he change our hearts? We recognize that, that for life, we need Christ. And Christ died for us. And that should melt our hearts. That should melt our hearts. Christ's mediation for us is the ultimate evidence of God's love. So what's going on in our consciences that inhibit us from this true heart before God, this wholeheartedness which we've been talking about since Genesis 18 when God calls Abraham to be wholehearted or blameless, honest and open, not perfect, honest and open before the Lord God. So I think there are some things here in the text that, it, that tells us why we as Christians or we as non-Christians, why we are in this place of a, of a hardened or darkened conscience before not just God, but, because, but before other people as well. So the first thing, Israel never addressed their grumbling and complaining. Remember when they told God and Moses why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? There we had meat pots. There we had bread to the full. There we had water. There we were secure. Which was a lie they were telling themselves because things were, you know what, it, when things are bad, we start making accusations and believing things that aren't true. And so they had been slandering God for him delivering them. Their babies were being murdered and they were being beaten on a daily basis. So they, had never, they never came clean with God for that. 
And five times they grumbled. It wasn't just food and water and security. We went over that two sermons. So they got what they wanted, but they never acknowledged their state before God. It's like, it's like, you know, when children throw a fit. We as parents often just to, just to stop the fit, <laughs> we'll give in. Not all the time. Maybe some of you do it all the time, but just, I think all of us have. At some point, we give in just so our kids will calm down. And the kid gets what they want, and they don't ever apologize or say thank you. And, and you know, if you have that kind of a pattern <laughs> over years... Uh, eventually the children become disrespectful and the kids and the parents get tired of the kids. Children get spoiled and the parents grow weary. So when we're not wholehearted, when we are not willing to expose and bring to the light our lives before God and really our lives before other people, there's something that we want remain hidden. Something that resists being exposed. We, for what we feel guilty, we feel ashamed, we feel vulnerable, and we don't draw near, we back away, and we isolate. So what is that? Number two, why, what prevents us from being wholehearted? So we're not wholehearted is number one. What prevents us from being wholehearted? And I think it's this. We, we have a desire to be fully human, to be fully righteous, to be to be honorable and glorious and truthful and sincere and, and to experience life the way it should be lived and to, and to be whole. That's what it means to be righteous. And we think that we should be able to. Like we can aspire to it because we know what it would kind of be. We know what kind of things we wouldn't do. We know what kind of things we would do. But obviously we're not able to fulfill this desire that we have to be a full and whole human being. But to acknowledge this, to acknowledge that we're not who we would like to be, it kind of it busts this dream. And, and we have to come to the point of acknowledging that we're just not who we would like to be. And then this feeds our low self-esteem, our, if, our, our low sense of self. And, and deep down, and, and Martin Luther spoke to this often, our, this desire that we have where we, we know that we could be better and that we should be better, and so we just keep striving and striving and striving, but we can't work it out. But there's this thing that the, the Scriptures call the flesh, this desire that we have as human beings to say that I can be a righteous human being and I do not need God to do it. Which is So we, we develop, the more we are in this mindset, the lower our self-esteem gets, and it's what really becomes ex exposed is that we would like to think really highly about ourselves. And because we can't, it's depressing. And we're unwilling to let go of these aspirations. I think the third thing is that, I, you know, life is full of things that we continue to enjoy that we didn't work for that we, and that we don't deserve. And that we realize that we are ungrateful. And that slowly erodes our consciences. I didn't deserve this. I enjoy this. But if you're not giving thanks to God or honoring him for what you have, is it be, are you thinking that it's because you did it? 
You know, the circumstances of our lives are, are the factors of so many things that are outside of each of our individual's control. But we enjoy a lot. And that there needs to be some recognition of that. And if we don't, I think our consciences are eaten up. And we begin despising these things. And I think we also end up being stingy. In our, in, our, in our desire, you know, self-righteousness, a desire to be whole and true and righteous in and of ourselves, even though we know we, we're not getting there, but we certainly would like to be, it also breeds um, self-centeredness, which is your whole life and your whole world is just increasingly about you and your own success and your own righteousness and your own sense of self, your own place in this world, your own goodness. And that, what happens with that kind of a person is that they're, they become an increasingly selfish person that they don't share with all the things that they have and enjoy but don't really deserve. And so this lack of generosity becomes a part of, of our lifestyle. And we saw this with the the people when they hoarded the manna. They didn't believe they'd have enough, so they increasingly got enough so that they'd be secured, they'd be taken care of. And this sense that we get to be secure and to provide for our own well-being, to become this righteous and whole person that we want to be, eventually it overrides our sense of obligation to share with others. So these, these are four things. There's probably more, but these things are clearly in the text about what Israel was experiencing. So how do we have a pure conscience? How, what does it mean to have a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? And what does any of this have to do with Easter? So obviously Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus just rose from the dead. There were people that rose from the dead prior to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's in the stories of the Gospels. Jesus rose people from the dead. So Jesus wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. He was the first person to rise from the dead never to die again. That's an important second phrase. He rose from the dead never to die again. He is in a human body right now. Jesus Christ is. Awaiting his return to earth. And the fact that he is in a human body right now is testimony to his power over death. A power that no hum human being has ever been able to demonstrate. It is the promise that we can truly live forever. That's the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the promise that God makes to those who will believe that God loves them, that he is the source of life, and to find life eternal, they're to turn to Jesus Christ. If you'd like some resources on the, 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 the veracity of the gospel accounts in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, contact me afterwards. That's not what this sermon's about. There is a lot of textual and historical evidence that, that points to the, the truthfulness of the gospel accounts in Jesus' resurrection. Now, if we take a step back, again, I mentioned earlier, when humanity died, they didn't immediately experience physical death. So that's what we celebrate, Jesus' his physical resurrection from the dead, never to die again. But that's not what happened first. What happened first was a death of conscience. Remember what happened to man and woman in the garden when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They hid from themselves 
They were ashamed. And then they heard God's presence in the garden. And they didn't draw near to God like they had been accustomed to. They hid, just like the people of Israel did when God came down on the mountain and said, hey, I want to meet you. And they're like, no, we're running away. Talk to Moses. We'll deal with him. Easter is all about, also about, the resurrection of our consciences. The, the cleansing of our consciences, sprinkled clean, the purifying of our consciences. And what does that mean? Well, darkened and dead consciences feel guilt and shame and fear and insecurity and vulnerability and, and disappointment. It creates distance between God and us and us and others. It makes us timid. It makes us afraid. It makes us withdrawn. It... it, 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 it um, we don't know who we are. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what our meaning is or purpose. These are all consequences of being disconnected from the source of life himself. And it, and it creates challenges from open and honest relationships with people because we have these insecurities and vulnerabilities and shames and people just bring these out. And so we find ourselves in constant conflict. It's isolating, self-condemning, angry, suspicious, fearful, and ultimately empty. That's what a dark and dead conscience is. So when Christ rose, he later ascended. And this is a really important part of the gospel as well, which is why we, I guess there's a celebration of ascension. I didn't, I didn't really know that since I didn't grow up in a traditional uh, church that celebrated all these various days. But he ascended, and he had to ascend in order to send his Holy Spirit. So his Holy Spirit is, is God's presence. It's God's presence. And upon faith in the love of God for us, ultimately shown through Jesus Christ, that Christ sacrificed his own self, he took on death, because that's our inevitable fate, he took on death so that he could give us his life. If we believe that, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, enters into us, enters into us. We're going to read in, in Exodus 40, when we get to the end of the book, we're going to see that God's presence comes and dwells in a tent. And it's a highlight, but I think if you're reading it carefully, it's also a disappointment. Because where God was wanting to meet the entire nation... Now God comes and he meets in a tent with one man one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. It's not the whole nation. But now in Christ, he sends his presence into each and every one who believes. It's the same spirit. It's the same presence. And that renews and regenerates us. It gives us new life. It gives us new life. A clean and purified conscience is now possible. We don't have to be dominated by guilt and shame and fear and self-condemnation. But we can, we can experience peace and joy and freedom and optimism and a sense of who we are, a strong sense of identity, a strong sense of purpose, a strong sense of meaning, a strong sense that we are a part of a collective family in the kingdom of God and that, that we are a part of God's eternal purposes and plans throughout time and, and its entire planet. And then with the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, 
that God gave to us after Christ ascended and he rose from the dead, we start the process of becoming alive. Christ is our template. We are being renewed into the image of our creator and then recreator, Colossians 3 argues. That new life, that new birth now starts working in us. It's not immediate. There are some things after you come to know Jesus Christ, as some of you have experienced, that are immediate, like you're transformed. But it takes time. It takes time because we have brains and we have bodies that have been conditioned to a world with darkened consciences. And so it takes time to renew. It takes time to to push off this desire to be righteous on our own. It pushes, it takes time to, to, to understand the lies that we're being told by our own selves and by the world around us. It takes time. But with time and the presence of God in us and the prayers of the saints and our help and love and strength and encouragement with each other, we get there. We, we, we come to a point where the Bible calls mature. We're not tossed to and fro. We are experiencing the life of Christ the resurrected life of Christ through his Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the gift of a pure and clean conscience and the confidence and joy that you give along with that. God, our prayer is that we as a people would, would celebrate and recognize the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the gifting of the Spirit every day, that we could dwell in your presence, that we could sense your presence through that Spirit that dwells within us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.